So a few weeks ago, there was a woman who popped up on the news, and I found it disturbing on a number of different levels. It was a woman from, the, from Ukraine, and she was handing out packets of sunflower seeds to Russian soldiers. Did you see that? She was handing out packets of sunflower seeds, which looked very nice, uh, but actually what she was doing each time was announcing a curse. When your body falls here in Ukraine, these sunflower seeds will grow through your corpse. I think we need to stare deeply at that kind of thing because in our rather nice John Lewis, North London, we don't quite get the grief, the anger, the pain, the longing for victory that lies behind that kind of a curse. And we need to tune into it, we need to tap into it to get the feeling that lies behind our passage today. Because otherwise, I, I'm, I must admit, I, I find a bit of a disconnect between this and my normal Sunday morning. But it does click with our news. It, it's the difference between the UK winning Eurovision, yay, and Ukraine winning Eurovision. Yes, that's fitting. That's appropriate. There's a, there's a rightness, a fittingness about it. I uh, took this passage to the team earlier this week. We were talking around it about, about the relevance of this particular passage. And um, it was really interesting to hear what they said. They talked all the way from thinking about persecuted Christians, hidden Christians. And maybe some of them are watching us this morning or listening to our podcast, living in a country where it's not safe to be known as a Christian. And it went from that big global thing right narrowing down to victims of domestic violence who dread what they're going home to after church on a Sunday. Because this passage is all about victims of oppression. And it is good news for victims of oppression. You've closed your Bible, open it again, page 699. Just hear the tone of voice behind the first two verses. The Lord will have compassion on Jacob. Once again, he will choose Israel and will settle them in their own land. Foreigners will join them and unite with the descendants of Jacob. International peace. Nations will take them and bring them to their own place. And Israel will take possession of the nation's and make them male and female servants in the Lord's land. They will make captives of their captors and rule over their oppressors. It's not about the tinsel, is it? It is about truth. And when you look at this promise, it's about things being right, things being restored, a sense of justice and in God's hands and things being port, put right. Now, of course, it's poetry. We know that it's poetry. It's intense and it's powerful. It, this is not written like a Wikipedia article. It's meant to generate strong emotions in us. And there is pain here, pain that longs for God to act. And out of that pain comes what is called in verse, uh, verse 2 a, a taunt. Verse 3, rather. 
Um, on the day the Lord gives you relief from your suffering and turmoil and from the harsh labor forced on you, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. And shorthand version, we are watching on our screens every night exactly what the Israelites would have faced at the hands of the Babylonians. That, that's the kind of oppression and violence they were facing, okay? That's what they're looking for. And if you are fearful... Maybe because you are frightened of what happens outside your front door, or maybe you're frightened of what happens inside your front door, this is good news. God will act. One more thing. If you are a bully or an abuser, this is very bad news. Because God will act. And he has staked his reputation on it. So here's their, their problem. They're saying, can God see our oppression? What do I do with the experience of our oppression? What do I do with the helplessness in the face of it? And what can we as Christians say, publicly or, or in private? Well, I've said that it's a poem. We have to read it like a poem. And this particular poem has got five movements, if you like. Five, five groupings of, of things that are said and they're sharp and they're intense and in the first movement the victims speak that's verses three to eight how the oppressor has come to an end how his fury has ended the lord has broken the rod of the wicked the scepter of the rulers which in anger struck down peoples with unceasing blows and in fury subdued nations with relentless aggression. All the lands are at rest and at peace. They break into singing. Even the junipers and the cedars of Lebanon gloat over you and say, now that you have been laid low, no one comes to cut us down. The victims speak. And it's very stark and very clear. The violence will end. I don't know if you or members of your family have gone to see the new Doctor Strange movie. One of, one of the reasons that these Marvel movies keep coming out is they never quite manage to defeat the bad guy. Well, there's, there's always another bad guy, and it's normally a worse bad guy than in the movie before. It gets worse, and it's a never-ending cycle. We're going to be with these Marvel movies for decades, I just warn you. It's never-ending, the cycle. Here, the problem looks never-ending. Can you see in verse 6, it talks about unceasing and relentless oppression. But here is what God has said. It will come to an end. It has ended. He has broken the rod. Human violent oppression will end. And I wonder if you spotted there was more as well in verse 8. Even the junipers and the cedars of Lebanon will rejoice. The Babylonian armies, like armies the world over, despoil the countryside. They had a scorched earth policy. Anything that they didn't steal for their own food, they would burn to destroy it, make sure that nobody else got it for theirs. The trees, the great cedars of Lebanon, would be ripped up by their roots to be turned into battering rams and siege engines and to make sure they couldn't be used for defense. 
And here in this psalm, the land breathes a sigh of relief. Creation rejoices because of the peace. Creation care and looking for an end to human abuse of creation is not a new fad built in right here into, into Isaiah. It will come to an end. The victims speak. Second movement. Drop down your line of sight. We're going to go down to the underworld, to the realm of the dead. And the dead speak. Now remember, this is a poem, not a literal map or description of what's going on. It's, it's put in terms that the Babylonian kings would understand. And actually, the issue is not really to do with one king. It's to do with a line of kings, to do with the monarchy. And why doesn't that society and the city and the empire and their structures? And Babylon expected everyone to stand when they appeared. The Babylonian kings would have stood for nothing. They expected everyone to stand for him. And here's what happens when Babylon, in all its glory, linked up to one person, but actually standing for a line of kings. Here's what happens when they process to the realm of the dead. Verse 9. The realm of the dead below is all astir to meet you at your coming. It rouses the spirits of the departed to greet you. All those who were leaders of the world, it makes them rise from their thrones. All those who were kings of the nations, you got the scene? Everybody else is standing to see Babylon come and they will all respond. They will say to you, you also have become weak as we are. You have become like us. All your pomp has been brought down to the grave along with the noise of your harps. Maggots are spread out beneath you and worms cover you. Mighty Babylon dead, feeble, disgusting. Now lift your eyes. Lift your eyes above the earth to the heavens. Here's the third movement. Remember, this is a poem, not a map, and it makes sense to a Babylonian worldview. In their view, there were loads of gods, and these gods dwelt up in the skies, so the closer you got to the skies, the closer to the gods you were. And the higher up you got, the better you were. That's why they built those famous ziggurats and things, the towers of Babylon, to get up. And they had a view that one of the mountains nearby, that's where the gods congregated. And so the kings, the closer they got to the top of that mountain, the closer they were to God, the closer they were to being God. And so the king's goal was to describe themselves sitting on the summit. And what does heaven say to the kings who are dragging their thrones up to the top of the mountain? How you have fallen from heaven, verse 12, morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the Mount of Assembly, on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon. That is, look at their footnote, that's their sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High, but you are brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. Again, it's a future judgment. It's a warning of future judgment. God will win. 
Now, pause for a second. If you're a Bible sleuth, I know some of us here are Bible sleuths. If you're a Bible sleuth, this will start to be a little bit familiar. In the book of Ezekiel, there's a very similar poem about the king of Tyre being cast down after he set his heart on being at the top. Another repressive regime collapses under God's good hand. In the book of Revelation, we find even more that it's not just about one political empire, it's about the whole lot opposed to God. In fact, behind that, God's enemy himself, the evil one, Satan, God will win. All opposition to God will fall. Fourth movement, the future speaks. What, what will every king, and certainly every king of Babylon, was captivated by the idea of posterity and legacy, and what will the future say about my reign? Verse 16, those who see you stare at you. They ponder at your fate. Is this the man who shook the earth and made kingdoms tremble? The man who made the world a wilderness, who overthrew its cities and would not let his captives go home? All the kings of the earth lie in state, each in his own tomb, but you're cast out of your tomb like a rejected branch. You are covered with the slain, with those pierced by the sword, those who descend to the stones of the pit, like a corpse trampled underfoot. You will not join them in burial. You have destroyed your land and killed your people. What will happen to your descendants, your family tree? Let the offspring of the wicked never be mentioned again. Prepare a place to slaughter his children for the sins of their ancestors. They are not to rise to inherit the land and cover the earth with their cities. This, this monarchy, this vicious, vile way of running his world will end. Now, it's easy to say with hindsight, well, of course Babylon would fall. Of course it's now just a pile of muddy bricks in the desert. Of course, because, I mean, ev doesn't every empire collapse at some point? Well, yeah, but no empire ever thinks it will. Every, every empire thinks it is an exception. Rome calls itself the eternal city. China calls itself the kingdom of heaven. British Empire, on which the sun never sets. Yes, it did. The Mayan, the Spanish, the Habsburg, the Soviet, all have and all will fall. So will China, so will Russia. They always do. Now, why? Is it because there's some kind of inevitable law of progress that we move from oppression to democracy? Well, no, history shows that that's wrong. That's naive. Is it because of the triumph of Western secular values trumps everything else? Well, no, I think history has shown that to be naive as well and rootless. No, the real reason that every empire falls is the fifth movement. We've heard the victims speak, the dead speak, the heavens speak, future speak, and finally God speaks. Verse 22. And notice the personal nature of what God says. I will rise up against them, declares the Lord Almighty. I will wipe out Babylon's name and survivors, her offspring and descendants, declares the Lord. I will turn her into a place for owls and into a swampland. I will sweep her with the broom of destruction, declares the Lord Almighty. The Lord Almighty has sworn. Surely as I have planned, so it will be. And as I have purposed, so it will happen. I will crush the Assyrian in my land. On my mountains I will trample him down. His yoke will be taken from my people, his burden removed from their shoulders. This is the plan determined for the whole world. 
This is the hand stretched out over all nations, for the Lord Almighty has purposed, and who can thwart him? His hand is stretched out, and who can turn it back? God has spoken. More and more, he's, he has sworn. He has made, verse 24, a solemn oath. He has, verse 26, planned, verse 27, purposed. And it's not just the Babylonians. Did you spot that? The Assyrians. That's like saying, it's okay, I'll sort out Hitler, then I'll sort out Stalin after that. The whole lot are sorted. The whole of ancient and contemporary history, verse 26. This is his plan for the whole world. God has staked his reputation on this, on sorting out Putin and Russia. If you were at the breakfast yesterday, on sorting out the plight of the Dalit in India. He swears it to every nation. He swears it to every victim. He swears it to every oppressor. God plays a long game, but he will win. Now, there's a problem. And it was captured beautifully last week by somebody. By, by, I'm not sure she's here this morning. She might well be. She came up to me afterwards. She's saying, I'm really enjoying the reading plan we're doing through Isaiah. I don't know if you've got that. It's a card. We're reading through Isaiah week by week. I'm really enjoying it. The trouble is that God seems more like an oppressor sometimes. God, God seems like a bully. So let me show you how God will do this. Because how God will do this changes everything. We have to stand back from this particular passage to look at Isaiah as a whole. In the last third of Isaiah, there's a character who appears, who is called the servant. Slightly shadowy character. Sometimes it seems to be a way of describing Israel as a whole, God's people as a whole. Sometimes it's an individual who does things for God's people. But time and again, and not exactly, it's not a sort of a footnote type thing, but the themes that come up in the first half come up in the second half and they're resolved by the servant. And the servant relates to the victims. So if, you're, if you want to join me, we're going to be doing a few passages at the back end of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 40. Here is how he is introduced. And all of these quote the Messiah, so they're famous, okay? Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she's received from the Lord's hand the double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. You know how it goes. This is how he introduces the servant who is going to come. I said that the uh, creation was the victim of human oppression. Responds to the, to the servant. Chapter 55, verse 12. You'll know these. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills will burst into song before you. All the trees of the field will clap their hands. Because they're palm trees. Ho, ho. Um, Instead of the thorn bush will grow the juniper, 
and instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign that will endure forever. The servant will bring peace to creation. What's a servant say in the realm of the dead? Remember the king of Babylon who was horrendously dead and appalled? Well, the servant goes to the realm of the dead, chapter 49. Verse 7. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and the Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers, kings will see you and stand up. Princes will see and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. The servant will silence kings. They will stand for the servant. Not because of his ghastliness, like Babylon, but because of his glory. What's the servant going to say and do in the heavenly realms? Remember the king of Babylon was dethroned, cast down, chucked out? Chapter 60, verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord rises on you. See, darkness covers the earth. Thick darkness is over the peoples. The Lord rises upon you. His glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light. Kings to the brightness of your dawn. The very opposite of the bearer of light who is cut is this bearer of light who is lifted up into the heavens to the center of the world. See the pattern? Babylon goes down, the servant goes up. What does the servant say and do for the future? Remember, Babylon is just a, a carcass on a battlefield, doesn't even get a royal burial and a name on his tomb. The servant, well, the servant goes from carcass to kingship. Chapter 53, verse 7. He, the servant, was oppressed and afflicted, yet did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him, cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. He will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. You see the difference? You see, the king of Babylon is cast down into the grave forever. The servant goes to the grave and comes back again victorious. And what will God say about this servant? That was the final movement, wasn't it? God speaks. What will God say? Hear this, and this is astonishing. From chapter 49, 
Verse 5. And now the Lord says, He who formed me in his womb to be his, in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. It's too small. It's too small a picture just to defeat Babylon. He's going to defeat sin and death for all of us. God will win, and he has sworn it. And that's why the servant brings good news, salvation to the world. That's why, and God has staked his reputation on it. And if you're here as a Christ follower today, if you know about Jesus, you know that all of this points to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all panning out. As I read those Isaiah passages, I think, oh, well, that's about Jesus. Oh, that's about Jesus. Yes, it is. Jesus, born into our world, comes down, goes down to death, comes back into glory, risen and raised and ascending. God is working out his plan. As Jesus hangs on the cross, he hangs there because God has staked his reputation on defeating his enemies. And as Jesus raised from the dead, it's because God has staked his reputation on defeating his enemies. So when Vladimir Putin stakes his reputation on defeating Ukraine, he won't. He can't defeat God. God has staked his reputation on the opposite, on the death and resurrection of Jesus, which we pray might even apply to Vladimir Putin. If you're watching or listening in a secret country today, know that no one and nothing can stand in God's way. He has staked his reputation on it. And if you're sitting here this morning or watching or listening, thinking, no one sees me, know that no one can stand in God's way. He is the God of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're thinking, no one can hear me, Yes, he can. He is the God of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're saying, who acts for me? It's the God of the Lord Jesus Christ. This isn't an instant magic cure. One of the most mind-boggling parts of Isaiah is that he was writing all this decades before it happened. Israel still had to go into captivity to Babylon, exile for 70 years, and then return. This is not an instant magic cure. But they know that as they went through that, God would be with them, God would rescue them, and God would defeat Babylon and restore them. God plays the long game, but he will win. And he staked his reputation on it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this picture of you from Isaiah is strong, but Boy, it's brilliant. It is astonishing and wonderful and glorious, even if it's difficult sometimes. But that you will win, you will defeat the enemies of oppression and violence and bring one, everyone under the wonderful, loving lordship 
of the Lord Jesus Christ.